Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next. Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post-pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated or had a baby or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward toward all the promises he has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code JRRPODCAST to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan podcast and to our Bible study, our ongoing study through the book of Acts, which is called Unstoppable. As I was preparing this uh, podcast, I received an email from my publisher, HarperCollins, telling me that my newest book, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is now available at all book distributors everywhere. And this is a beautifully done book because it's done by the gift division of HarperCollins Christian Publishers. It's got a textured cover. It's got a ribbon. The interior pages are beautifully designed. It's the kind of gift you'd want to give to anybody. It would be a wonderful Christmas gift if you want to do some early Christmas studies or or rather early Christmas gift buying. But it's very Um, I think helpful to study this subject of the faithfulness of God as well as you open its pages. There are about 80 to 90 references to the faithfulness of God in the Bible, specifically using that word faithfulness. Of course, I could make a case that every verse in the Bible has to do with the faithfulness of God, but specifically using that word in the English translations, faithfulness, I found over 80 occurrences And I chose 52 of them and wrote devotions on them and exegetical thoughts. I found some great old works having to do with the faithfulness of God that I quoted. And so I think you'd enjoy it. Please check it out. Great is thy faithfulness wherever books are sold. Now we're continuing on with the book of Acts, our study there, and we're coming to chapter 21. And I want to begin with this question. Have you ever felt like giving up? Do you feel that way now? Well, today I want to show you an occasion when the whole attitude of giving up was actually a sanctified moment. It was a mark of true victory. In our series through the book of Acts, we're coming to this chapter 21. And if you're able to open your Bibles, then I hope you'll open because I'm going to read through this chapter. It's going to be a little content heavy. I'll make comments along the way, but I really want you to understand what is happening here. And there is one lesson that I simply cherish and 
So after we go through the entire chapter, I'll circle back to it, and that's how we will end in a few minutes. So in the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters tell the story of Peter. And then starting in chapter 13, we really don't see Peter anymore, but the Apostle Paul comes to the center stage. His unfolding story is told in terms of three great missionary trips that he took. And as we come to chapter 21, Paul is now finishing his third missionary trip. He spoke to the Ephesian elders, as we saw last time, and now he is determined to go on to Jerusalem, which is the most dangerous city in the world for him, and a city that was already at the boiling point. Paul was the most prominent Jew to become a Christian, and he was the most prominent Christian to advocate taking the Gospels to the Gentiles. And so he was twice hated, in a way, by his own people. Why, then, is he going to Jerusalem? He could just go to Antioch, give a report, and leave for his fourth missionary tour. Why does he want to go to Jerusalem? Well, he had been collecting an offering throughout this entire third missionary journey for the poor Christians in Judea, and he wanted to deliver it. He hoped that it would help heal the breach between the Gentile church and Asia and Europe and the Jewish church in Jerusalem and Judea. And he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to do this. In fact, he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. So there seems to be a series of different thoughts swirling through Paul's mind all at once. First, he is actively planning a fourth missionary tour. He had already written to the Romans and told them that he was going to Jerusalem, and then he was going to leave there and go on to Rome and then on to Spain. Second, he feels compelled to go by the Spirit to Jerusalem. But third, the same Holy Spirit who is compelling him to go to Jerusalem is warning him that things will not go well for him there. And as we'll see, those warnings will grow more intense and will prove to be accurate. I'm struck by the words in chapter 20 when he said, not knowing what will happen to me. We don't know what will happen from day to day. None of us knows what will happen, and sometimes when the issues are serious, the uncertainty can almost be more than we can bear. In the past few weeks, I've had several friends who have been diagnosed with cancer, and they're having to live with uncertainty. Some are waiting for fuller diagnoses, and that's very difficult. Everything like that when we live in a state of uncertainty is very difficult, and that's when we need more than ever that which God alone can provide, which is a walk of faith. Well, in his gospel, Luke devoted a vast amount of space to our Lord's final journey to Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts, Luke does the same for the Apostle Paul in his final journey to Jerusalem. Luke is clearly creating a parallel, a deliberate literary parallel between his gospel and the book of Acts. Ben Witherington the third, the commentator, points out four parallels. In both cases, with Jesus going to Jerusalem for his final trip in the gospel, and with Paul doing the same in the book of Acts, both 
journeys involve Jewish plots. In both cases, there is a handing over or a falling into the hands of Gentiles in Jerusalem. In both cases, there is a triple prediction of coming suffering. And in both cases, there is in the end a resignation to God's will. Well, with all of that sort of as background, let's begin our study of Acts chapter 21. I hope you found your place in the text, and we'll read it, and then I'll circle around to the point that I want to make. So chapter 21, verse 1, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. Now, they are leaving now, the Ephesian elders They had wept and prayed as they knelt on the beach. And the word we here indicates that Luke was part of the group. And this is where a good map comes in. Maybe you have a Bible map or a Bible atlas or one in the back of your Bible. I simply Googled Paul's third missionary journey map and found a very, very helpful, colorful map that allowed me to follow along with his travels as I read through this chapter. So you might want to do the same. The text continues, the next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. The voyage from Patara along the southern coast of Cyprus and on to Tyre was a voyage of about 400 miles. It would probably be made in less than a week. There were no passenger ships, but people could book passage on the freighters. Most of them were granary ships carrying wheat and grain across the Roman Empire. Some of these passengers had little tents that they put on the deck, and they lived in those tents. Conditions were fairly primitive. But it says in verse 3, after sighting Cyprus, they would have seen the island of Cyprus where Paul began his first missionary journey over on the left side of the boat. It says, um, after uh, passing, after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria, and we landed at Tyre where our ship unloaded its cargo. Verse 4, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them several days. Uh, seven days. We don't know who these Christians were in the city of Tyre, but it probably included people whom Paul had met and known in his uh, travels and maybe some uh, new friends and how special it was for them to have the great apostle Paul staying among them for a solid week. I suppose he stayed in the largest home available and all of the Christians came and they went and they fellowshiped with them and with Luke and with the companions here and Paul probably did some teaching, but they were all very concerned about one thing, Paul's insistence of going on to Jerusalem. Verse 4 says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, the Spirit was compelling Paul to go, but the Spirit was also warning him about going. It's very interesting. Verse 5 says, when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. Now, notice that here in Tyre, as well as earlier with the Ephesian elders, Paul and his friends knelt and prayed. It reminds me of Dr. Edwin Young. When I was a young man, I would visit this pastor in his office in South Carolina for advice, and when it came time to leave, he would always kneel by the chair and pray for me. 
And just a few months ago, I was in his office again, this time in Houston, Texas. He is 85 years old, but when we started to leave, he knelt by the sofa to pray. I don't hardly ever remember him praying without kneeling. I also think of Dr. W.A. Criswell of Dallas, who had kneelers installed into all of the pews at the First Baptist Church so the entire congregation could kneel in prayer. We've gotten away from this, but I'd like to begin doing this more again. Well, they knelt in prayer, and those seven days must have passed very quickly, and then Paul and his companions boarded a smaller ship for the trip down the coastline. Verse 6 says, After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7, We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we were greeted by brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Caesarea now, he is within the confines of the Holy Land, Israel, and Caesarea is the great harbor city uh, that was built by Herod the Great for the occupying Roman forces. And we were in Caesarea in chapter 10 of the book of Acts when Peter preached there to Cornelius. So one person who lived there was this man Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We last saw Philip in Acts chapter 8. Almost that entire chapter is devoted to him. And he went up to Samaria and led in a revival, and then he went down to Gaza where he converted the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he went, went up to Caesarea and settled down there in that city, which became evidently the headquarters for his ministry. Now, uh, Philip... He's called Philip the Evangelist. He is the only person in the book of Acts specifically called an evangelist, Philip the Evangelist. And furthermore, he had four daughters who prophesied. In my opinion, this means they were Bible teachers. Perhaps their father used his gift of evangelism to win people to the Lord, and these four daughters helped teach and to disciple the converts. Verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Well, we saw Agabus for the first time in Acts chapter 11, where he predicted a famine. Now he came from Jerusalem and was in Caesarea. And verse 11 says, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand them over to the Gentiles. So another warning. When we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Verse 15. After this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man of Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So Mason apparently lived on the road from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and therefore he must have really had a very busy home, because I suppose a lot of Christians would have stayed there as they came and went between those two cities. Notice how Paul had people everywhere he went that would entertain and take care of him. William Barclay is the New Testament scholar. I don't 
really have a very high opinion of him, but sometimes I'll read his commentaries, and he had a wonderful paragraph about this. He said, there is a very wonderful fact that whenever Paul went, that wherever Paul went, he found a little Christian community waiting to welcome him. If that was true in Paul's time, it is even more true today. One of the great privileges of belonging to the church is the fact that no matter where a person goes to the very ends of the earth, he will find in every place a community of like-minded people into which he may enter. He said the person who is within the family of the church is better equipped with friends than any other person in the world. Well, how true. And so Paul arrived in Jerusalem at the very time when the city was in a state of high tension. We are only 15 years away from the Jewish war of rebellion against Rome, which would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the disappearing of the nation of Israel. And passions were boiling over in the holy city. According to Josephus, this was an a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. It's interesting here, as you read through chapter 21, that Luke doesn't say anything about the offering that Paul collected or how it was delivered to the church. It seems that the city was so flammable that even Paul's offering was unable to do much good. Witherington says, quote, Under such circumstances, it is very believable that the collection will have failed to accomplish what Paul intended. Verse 17 says, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all of the elders were present. This James was the half-brother of Jesus and the head of the church in Jerusalem. Apparently, all of the surviving apostles had now left Jerusalem, and they were out and about in the empire evangelizing in other areas. So Peter isn't there, Thomas isn't there, John isn't there. The person uh, who's in charge of the church is James, the brother of Jesus. And it says in verse, 15, uh, verse 19, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, all of this is very interesting, and we have to read between the lines. James and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were totally consumed with Jewish evangelism. Yes, they had agreed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. They believed in the decree. They thought the Gentiles could be saved. But these Jerusalem and Judean Christians were Jewish through and through. They were slow to accept the fact that Gentiles could come to Christ by faith without going through the door of, doorway of Judaism. They weren't totally comfortable with the Christianity that totally excluded Judaism. I don't think they had really accepted Paul and his mission, at least not emotionally, as much as we would like to think they did. But verse 9 says that Paul greeted them, not that they greeted Paul, but they, he greeted them, and he told them all that God had done among the Gentiles through him. And verse 20 says, when they heard this, they praised God. But then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are very zealous for the law. So praise the Lord, you've had converts, but so have we. 
and ours are Jewish converts, and they are all very zealous to serve Jesus with all of their Jewishness. Furthermore, they had a misconception about Paul. They thought that he was telling Jewish Christians to abandon their Jewish traditions. They thought Paul was telling converted Jews, now you can do away with your Jewish diet and your Jewish festivals and with the Sabbath and with the circumcision and with the law. Well, you can see how confusing this would be. This was a very difficult issue to navigate. Gentile believers did not have to keep the law to be saved. And frankly, neither did Jewish believers who came to Christ. And in heavily Gentile areas, it's very possible that some of Paul's Jewish converts had ceased to observe some of the Torah regulations. They had come to Christ and they said, now we don't need to worship on the Sabbath. We'll worship on Sunday. We don't need to abstain from certain foods. We can just simply be pleasing to God by grace and through faith. And technically, they was, that was right, but that wasn't a very popular message for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were still very zealous about the law. And so this was a very, very difficult issue. Everything was a point of confusion and of controversy, and these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were sensitive about the issue, and they were in a city that was already boiling over with tension. So Paul walked right into a very politically volatile situation with an issue that was very easily misunderstood. Well, James and the Jewish Christian leaders understood what Paul was doing, but they were having a hard time sort of explaining and navigating and threading that needle. So they came up with a plan in verse 21. These Jewish Christians, they said, have been informed that you teach all of the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So Paul was not only being criticized by the Jews in Jerusalem, but by the church in Jerusalem. And it seems that James and the Jewish Christian leaders in Jerusalem hardly knew what to do with him. The last thing they needed was another major controversy. But they came up with a plan. They said in verse 23, So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth to these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So commentators are not certain as to the nature of this vow, but apparently there were some men here who were ready to take a seven-day purification ceremony. Many Jews undertook such a ceremony when they returned to Jerusalem from Gentile lands. And these Jewish leaders said, if the Jews here, if the Jewish Christians see you observing Jewish law, though you are a Christian, then they will understand that you have embraced Messianic Judaism and that you still observe the customs to our people. So Paul said, all right, I'll do that. Verse 26, the next day, Paul took them in and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering for each would be made. 
Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul and the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now, this mob was not started by Jewish Christians, but by Jews there in the temple precincts. And it says in verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Gentiles could approach the temple to a certain point. They could visit what was called the Court of the Gentiles. But then there was a stone wall about four feet high, and at the gate was a sign saying, No foreigner may enter without the, uh, may enter within this barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows, death. We actually have one of those ancient inscriptions in the Israel Museum. Well, Trophimus was a Gentile Christian from Ephesus. He is mentioned three times in the Bible. He was a companion of Paul. But Paul would never have taken him through the gate of the temple that was restricted to the Jews. But all it took was a rumor, and the rumor sparked a riot. And remember, according to Josephus, the city of Jerusalem was at the boiling point. They were on the verge of revolting against Rome. People were very angry. The Jewish leadership had deep divisions among themselves. They were trying to deal with vast numbers of Jews who were embracing the Messiah. And you've seen on television what happens when a city is near the boiling point or when a riot breaks out. One incident can trigger a riot, and that's what happened here. Verse 30 says, The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul found himself being plummeled by the Jewish mob, and the Roman commander and his soldiers came, broke it up, and uh, rescued Paul. It says in verse 33, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, which probably means that Paul was bound with chains to two soldiers, one on his right and one on his left. Well, I'm going to uh, stop our study here today at this point because the Apostle Paul is now in Roman custody, and he will remain so either in Jerusalem or Caesarea or Rome for the next four years. But in the entire section that we have just read, there is one verse I keep going back to. I want to circle back to it now. I want to end this podcast by talking about it and show you this with a closing application. And it is Acts 21 and verse 14. Let's go back there. This is when they are trying to persuade Paul not to go to Rome. But it says, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. Did you notice that earlier? We gave up and said the Lord's will be done. I don't know how many times I've come back to this verse in my own experience. We all have certain 
longings or aspirations or dreams or desires. And sometimes those things are not going to happen the way that we want them to. They just are not going to. We earnestly pray for certain things, but sometimes the Lord does not give us an open door or an answer, uh, or at least the answer of yes to that prayer request. We may pour all of our energy into something, and it means the world to us, but we cannot make it happen. Maybe it's the desire to go to a particular school or to get a particular job or to make the team or to make it big in some profession or to advance to the next level or to have children or to see someone else's life reversed in a positive way or maybe to get over a serious illness. I used to believe that where there is a will, there's a way. But over the years, I've had to learn that there are some things I simply cannot make happen. No matter how hard I try, there are some problems I cannot solve, no matter how much I wish. And the disappointment or the heartache can burn through one's spirit like a toxic gas. But at some point, there is tremendous relief and peace. I don't think there is relief and peace anywhere else except... In this verse, giving up, just giving up and saying, the Lord's will be done. Jesus himself did this in the Garden of Gethsemane. When we cannot make something happen, we have to resign it to the Lord's will. We have to accept the fact that he knows best, that he has a plan, that he sees the future, that his agenda is better than ours. The Bible says, my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. So sometimes we have to give up and say, Lord, your ways and your thoughts are higher than mine, as high as the heaven is above the earth. And so I defer to you and I say the will of the Lord be done. And in this case with the Apostle Paul, everything that then unfolded was preordained and it all worked for the good. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul said that everything had really worked out for the furtherance of the gospel, as we'll see in the upcoming chapters of the book of Acts, because of what happened in Jerusalem. Paul was able to share his work with the entire mob that had gathered in front of him here. He was able to share his testimony with the leaders of the Jewish nation, the Sanhedrin. He was able to share his testimony with the highest leaders in the Palestinian province of the Roman Empire. And he was able to share his testimony with the highest leaders in the Roman Empire. He was uh, able or forced to take a sabbatical of sorts in Caesarea while Luke wrote the gospel. He was able to save an entire ship of 276 people. He was able to minister in Rome at the government's expense. He was able to have a two-year ministry in his own rented house while Luke wrote the book of Acts. He was able to write the prison epistles of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. He was able to witness to the most elite core of Roman soldiers in existence, some of whom took the gospel to remote parts of the empire. He was able to motivate the Christian church to rise to the occasion and to follow in his example and courage, and then he was able to be released for his fourth missionary tour in God's timing. I mean, our God always does what is in our 
best long-term interests and what is best for the far-flung cause of his gospel and of his glory. Our greatest disappointments are overturned by divine providence, and our heartaches are, through the power of the resurrection, overruled, overturned, overridden, though we may not see as much of the results of it or understand so much as we would like how it could be until we get to eternity. But eternity is worth waiting for. The Lord is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine, and so we should never despair. Coming to a place of giving up and saying, the Lord's will be done, is not a surrender to the circumstances, but a victory in the power of the resurrection of the one who turned death inside out and plundered the devil's plans. The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath us are the everlasting arm. So there is profound power in the surrender and submission and yieldedness that comes in the simple verse that I recommend you to keep near at hand, Acts 21, verse 14, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Well, next time we will continue with Acts chapter 22. I hope that you will share this podcast with other people. I'm so burdened for the biblical illiteracy of our times. I teach a class at the Donaldson Fellowship called Cover to Cover, going through the Bible, seeking to uh, erode biblical literacy. I have this podcast and the accompanying blog. And I hope that you'll check out all of my resources at robertjmorgan.com. I'm grateful to Clearly Media for producing this broadcast and for the theme music, which is by Elisha Rowe. This is Robert J. Morgan. May the Lord be with you until we meet again.